Well, I'd like to go on with uh, Ephesians, and in Ephesians chapter 6, you remember we were putting on the whole armor of God, and the thing to do was to put on the whole armor, and you found in that um, scripture that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And I want to go on, we've discussed what it meant to put on, we've discussed what it meant to put on the whole, and put on the whole armor, and the armor which is of God. We've been through that, and we've looked at each phase of it, those four phases, and we know what it means to put on the whole armor of God. And now I want to talk about um, the next part, that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And Paul in the scripture says, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. We're not ignorant. And one of the things we should do is give no place to the devil. We shouldn't give him a place. But don't think that that scripture means uh, that we should never ever look at his devices because obviously you need to know your enemy. If your enemy is going to attack you, you need to know him. And you will find always that the Israelites, when they went in, they sent out spies and they found out things. Gideon went and listened to what people were saying. And always it's good to know the strategy of the enemy, for then you know how easily you can defeat him. And um, the wiles of the devil is something that we need to be aware of. I need to know how he operates and what methods he'll use. And it's interesting that the word wiles in uh, the Greek, if you want to know, mean, is methodius. And um, that's where we get our word method from. And it actually means the art or order one observes in handling a point or an argument. It's an art of arguing. It's an art and order of arguing. Or it's the same as... Um, in an army, you'll set an army in order for battle, won't you? You'll form an army up in battle. Or it's like framing an argument. There are people who are very good at framing arguments. And they'll set forth arguments. Often they've got no logic in them. But they set them forth in such a way that if you're uh, not very careful, you might believe them. Now, Satan has two main designs in using his methods or wiles to trap Christians. And the first design is to draw the Christian into sin. That's his first design. His activities are, are working to draw Christians into sin. And the second thing he's after is to accuse and to vex and to trouble the saint for the sin that he has committed. And those two designs are... The subtleties of the devil. Those are the two things he's after. Firstly, to draw you into sin. And secondly, to trouble and vex you after you've committed sin and to accuse you. And it's very difficult. If you look at your life, you'll find that uh, the temptation comes to draw you in. But once you've been drawn in, it's hard to live down something that you've done, isn't it? You can't just put it off and forget it, even though you repent and you confess, you'll find that very often your past life will get thrown up and uh, 
The devil has a selection of videotapes almost to play back in your mind in full color to remind you of just what you did, especially when you confront someone else who needs salvation and they begin to open up their hearts and they start talking about things and you wonder whether you dare tell them there's victory in that area because the devil can remind you when you didn't have victory in that area. And immediately down you go. And so his wiles are always in those two realms and areas. And I want to look at it and I want us to discuss it so we can see what it's about. And the first thing I want to go into is to draw people into sin, Christians into sin. And sin means basically missing the mark. Uh, missing what God really wants for you and for me. That is sin. Missing the mark. And there are three things that I think are obvious in this realm of missing the mark. And the first is this, that the devil always chooses the right season for a particular temptation. He'll wait till the right season's there. The second thing is, the method of his temptation always displays his subtlety. And the third thing, he chooses the right weapons to gain his end. He waits for the right season, he shows his subtlety, and he always chooses the right weapons or instruments to gain his end. And that's the way he operates. And I want to look at it in uh, closer detail, bit by bit, it's better we analyze it and look in the scriptures. And if you turn with me to Ecclesiastes, that great book of the scriptures that seems to have no purpose other than to tell you what vanity is, but is very, very good at teaching us a lot about ourselves. And in Ecclesiastes and chapter 3, we find, and you will find it after Proverbs if you do find it difficult to find, and Proverbs comes after Psalms. Okay, where are we then? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1 on page 858. Uh, for those who have a good Cambridge version. And there we are. It says this in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time to war and a time to <laughs> peace. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? Um, and so on and so on. Now there's a time to do everything. Time to love, a time to hate, a time to embrace, a time not to embrace. And the devil knows in the spiritual realm there are times. 
There are seasons when he knows he can take opportunity against you and you'll be open in those seasons to certain temptations. Now he knows that. He knows that there's a time to this and a time to that. And so he waits his time and his season. It says in the scriptures that uh, Satan came and tempted Jesus and he left him, departed from him for a season. Well, he knew that at that time, and Jesus, it says, went forth in the power. And that was true. But there is a season when temptation will come. And the enemy knows at which season to produce which temptation. And we have to realize that there are seasons. And it's like in the spiritual sense, you will have a summer, you will have a spring, you will have an autumn, you will have a summer, spring, an autumn, spring, autumn, summer, or whatever you want to put it. You will have seasons in your spiritual life. There will be times when the presence and power of God overflows your being and you wonder that you could ever not uh, believe anything. There will be a time of autumn where the leaves begin to fall and you think, my goodness me, what is happening? And then there will be a springtime when the little buds shoot again and then there will be the spring and then there will be the delight of the summertime again and you wondered how you could have gone through the winter and you will find that there will be seasons in your spiritual life. Now the thing that, um, that's just to try you, to find you out. Now if you don't believe it, that's true. There are times and seasons. And we need to understand that. There was a time when Christ went forth in the power of the Spirit. There was a time when he was persecuted and driven. There was a time when he couldn't do many miracles because of the unbelief. There was a time when he did mighty works. There was a time when he went away on his own into the desert. And there was a time when he went and met the multitudes. There were times and seasons, heights and lows. There was a time with Peter when he said, Thou art the Son of Man, the Son of God. And then there was a time when he said, Be it far from thee, Lord. And the Lord said, Get behind me, Satan. There's times and seasons. Greatest time is often the time that the devil will slip in quick. The greatest triumph is often the greatest fall. Because then we're off guard. When we ride highest, we end up lowest if we're not careful. The enemy knows there's seasons. And he's a subtle old enemy. And then you look in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, if you go on in this wonderful book, and verse 11... And here in verse 11, we get these words. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. Now that goes against all natural things, doesn't it? Wouldn't you say, surely the one who runs swiftly should win the race? But how many times, I think I told you last time, I, I can't remember who the guy was, it was a marathon runner who ran so quick he beat all the field and he was so far ahead 
he collapsed before the finishing line, exhausted. And it was in the Olympic Games. Must have been, uh, uh, I think his name was Emerson, you know, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. I can't remember anyway. Someone told me what his name was. I've forgotten it again. What was his name? Who knows? Peters. Peters it was. Okay. And he ran and ran until he flaked out. And he, I remember him getting up and staggering towards the line and collapsing again and getting up. And he was so far ahead of the field. But the race isn't always to the swift. You've heard the story of the hare and the tortoise. I'm not sure there's any validity in it. But I mean, there it is. There's, there's people who are plodders who can arrive at the finishing line. And then there's the swift who go so quick they miss it. And the scripture says that um, it isn't to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. Now, you'd always think that the strongest should win the battle, wouldn't you? Hmm? Often, you'll look at a man who, who's really strong in the things of God and seems powerful, and you'll find that he'll get overtaken, and that you'll find a weak saint who doesn't have much strength will conquer. It's not to the strong. Neither yet bread to the wise. You'd think there's some people who have so much wisdom, especially in the word of God and the truths of God, you'd think uh, they must have the real bread of life. Nor yet riches to men of understanding. The riches of Christ aren't always given to men of understanding. They're often given to men of simplicity. Nor yet favor to men of skill. Men are skilled, but favor doesn't necessarily come their way. But, it says, time and chance happeneth to them all. Now, here is a certain thing, and in the spiritual realm and in the natural realm, it's true. Time and chance happeneth to all. There's a time when you are ready to respond to God, and God will begin to move in your life, and there's a chance you have to respond to him. And you'll either do it or not do it. And on that depends your eternal destiny. There's a time and there's a chance and it happens to everyone. But you might not take advantage of it. And the reason you won't take advantage of it is the next verse. For man also knoweth not his time. The trouble is, if we all knew, let's, let me ask you, if all of you knew exactly the time that the Lord was going to give you your opportunities, how many would respond at that time? How many would respond? Put your hands up if you'd respond at the time. If you knew there was a time, the time God was going to come, how many would be ready and waiting, prepared? How many? Go on, put your hand up. You'd be ready. I would too. If I knew the time, I'd be ready. Trouble is, we don't know our time, do we? Hmm? That's the trouble. Time isn't known. And it goes on as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time, when it falleth suddenly upon them. Now, sin and the trap and the snare of the devil 
comes at a time you don't expect it. He's waiting and lurking in the wings. There's a time and time and chance happeneth to every man. And the devil's waiting for the time and chance. He's engineering times and chances. And the trouble is you don't know it's your time of temptation. And the awful thing is when man can't see that the enemy's at this time taking him. When the woman can't see that the enemy at that time has got hold of him. It's awful too when there's a time of salvation and a man or woman ignores it. And the time and chance is gone. And we need to see in both areas it's true. There's a truth in the spiritual sense of responding to God. But there's a truth in the sense of the enemy. You won't know it's your time. Peter was told by the Lord. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have thee. He might sift thee as wheat. But I have prayed for thee. For thy faith fail not. Peter said, oh Lord, Lord, all men forsake thee, I won't. And then Jesus told him the time. But he didn't know the time until after he'd heard the cock crow and the sin was done. We always know the time afterwards, don't we? Any man when he's fallen can tell you the time he fell, the way he fell. The trouble is, the wise man needs to know before he falls. The wise man needs to know the things before it happens, not afterwards. And um, we need to understand that. And these times come on different types of people. And I want to tell you, there are times of temptation when you have to watch your soul very carefully. And these times are special times for each individual. And firstly, you've got the time for the newly converted. Babes, you know, are of special interest to the enemy, the devil. That is why you'll find when he knew that a Messiah was to come from Abram's seed, he tried to slaughter all the babies in Israel. Didn't he? They were in Egypt at the time, but all the babies of Israel... He tried to get killed. Do you remember every man-child has got to be taken, destroyed? Moses survived, didn't he? But he was the only one that we have record of that survived. And they, the devil tries to kill. Remember when Christ came? Wise men came from the east and they went to Herod's palace thinking a king should be born in a palace. Afterward, the star, which they'd seen when they were in the east, reappeared and led them to the right place. They never followed the star from the east. It reappeared after they'd been to Herod's palace. And when they left Herod's palace, it showed them where the baby was in Bethlehem. They saw the star and followed, thinking that Herod's palace would be the place for a prince. But when Christ was known to have been born, immediately Herod sent out men to murder all the babes. Remember? And the devil in the spiritual sense knows that the person he aims hardest for is babes in Christ. Kill them before they have opportunity to fulfill the will of God. Slay the seed that's born. Bring death to the heart. And a babe in Christ 
needs watching and tenderly caring for especially in a church because you'll find there are false things that will try and draw people away and destroy the life and then the second time that um, we have to watch for temptations is when we're in a time of affliction you know Job was afflicted by the enemy Satan came and and God said, hast thou considered my servant Job? And Satan said, all right. But he blesses God because he has wealth. God says, all right, you can touch him. And God bored in the hedge. He never took away the hedge, but he just bored it in nearer and nearer. Now Job then had three friends who came and counseled him. Three friends that lots of Christians have. And in times of affliction, you'll always get people telling you why you're afflicted. Now you need to hear what really an affliction's for. It's for the perfecting of your faith. For bringing you through with God. And in those times, the enemy will bring discouragement. He will bring, well, little comments like... Uh, if you've ever thought about it, God said to, to Satan, he said, you can have his family, but you can't touch his life. Do you know the one person that Satan left alive when he was given permission to slay all the family was Job's wife. Left her. Because he knew later on he could use her as a mouthpiece. She turned around to Job and said, all right, curse God and die. The devil will only touch that which is no use to him. He'll often leave well alive those that he can use later as a mouthpiece and instrument of his devilish designs. Job ignored his wife, thank God. Something to always bear in mind. <coughs> then there's the next thing uh, that we need to note is he'll come at a time when some notable enterprise for God is embarked upon. There was Paul and uh, uh, Barnabas and you remember in Acts 15 how there was a tremendous work of God going on and they decided they better go and visit all the churches where they'd been before and to strengthen the saints and to establish them in the word of life and immediately Satan saw that there was going to be a tremendous work done and a re-establishing of the churches and saints and so he got worried about it and he caused a contention. And it became so strong that they parted. One, to the, one one way and one the other way. What's so beautiful about it is the devil took advantage to part them. But then it meant that God sent two lots of people going and establishing his churches instead of one. He'd have sent Paul and Barnabas. Instead it went Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Mark. So all he did was double God's troops. He thought he'd destroy them. Uh, but God always does take advantage. But at times when we embark on a work of God, he will always try and bring division. And then the next thing, the fourth thing, is um, the devil will always take advantage when the object of temptation is near. In other words, I imagine the serpent sitting near the tree of life waiting till Eve got near enough to have a look. Because it says when he came and tempted her, 
she looked on the tree of life. And the devil will wait till you're near enough the object of your temptation. Now he might sit there for months just waiting. Waiting the season and the time when you'll be near enough the object that he can point it to you and slowly draw you in. What fisherman goes out and fishes with a naked hook? He usually puts a sweet bait upon it. I found in Argentina when you went fishing, the fish were particular. If you didn't get fresh fish to put on your hooks to bait them with small fresh sprats, but you used ones that were a day old, the fish wouldn't take it. But you got fresh ones and you threw it in the same area of water. You'd find that you'd be catching fish that long, you know, and uh, fisherman's stories that long. We caught 26 in about two hours, and it was quite simple. We went for four hours without catching uh, more than one, I think. And then we went, uh, John Miller went off and he bought some fresh fish at this fish market. And came back and immediately we started casting our lines in and a fish, they couldn't swallow the hook quick enough. He knows the right bait. And he sits and waits till you're near enough it. And then he digs you and points. And just suggests maybe that would be nice. Hmm? And temptation always comes as a season for it. And he knows the right time when you're in the right place. And then he gets you. And all of us need a watch. Eve was near the tree. You know it's strange. King David went up to walk in the garden. And he just happened to walk in the garden at the right time when Beersheba was taking a bath next door. Now, I mean the enemy waited. If she lived within view, there were lots of times David could have seen her. But he waited till the opportunity was right and bing. And of course it caused a lot of grief in Israel. And we need to be aware that the enemy waits. What we've got to do is keep ourselves far from temptation's door. There's areas where you find you'll fall best thing to do is keep well clear of them. Naomi knew the secret. Says to Ruth, hey, go and sleep at the feet of Boaz. Now, it wasn't long before Boaz took her for a wife. Put them near enough and in close enough proximity and things happen. Temptation is easily fulfilled. In scripture. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Five. Um, there's, uh, temptation comes. <laughs> Temp <laughs> temptation comes. After the manifestation. Of God's love. <laughs> and. You know, God can gloriously show his love to you. And it's at that time that you relax, isn't it? It's at that time you cease to watch. When God's done something wonderful in your life, it's at that time that the enemy's ready to get you. 
And then the other time, and it's something that they say in Africa, you know, a snake will never show himself till death. Then he'll allow himself to be seen near death. And the old serpent will wait, and somewhere near their deathbed, the serpent will show himself, will he just? I've been when people have died, and I've seen the serpent showing himself. I don't mean physically. Then we want to go on and leave those. Those are the seasons where you're most in danger. Note them. And then we want to go on to the methods he uses, the cunning. And if you look in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, firstly we look in there. In 2 Corinthians, there's a lot more I could say about it really, but I won't. Um, but in Second Corinthians, we come across um, in chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Let's take verse um, verse 12. And it says, But I, I, what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them that desire occasion. For wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Now Satan, you'll notice his ministers and himself, transforms into an angel of light. Watch it, my friends, when someone comes in the guise of a friend. Because a guise of a friend is often a time when you'll leave your guard down. I always watch it when someone is naturally a very friendly person. <clears throat> when there's oozes out of them, natural sweetness, forbidden in the sacrifices of God, but someone that you're naturally drawn to and has natural charisma is often the devil's emissary. Understand it. Natural sweetness is not a thing that God ever uses, not in his kingdom. And we need to understand that. Natural sweetness is the enemy. When you can naturally find a friend, you will find, or someone's naturally friendly and sweet and convincing, guard your heart well. You're likely to swallow. The tastiest morsels have the biggest hook. And the second thing is you need to know is that the, in his methods is that the devil knows your affairs. He's got good spies and he seeks out and finds out all about you. And the third thing you want to watch with the enemy in his methods is his gradual approach. Now, Satan is subtle. His approaches are subtle. And we've got to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, having on the whole armor of God, 
but we've got to watch. It's a constant dripping of water that weareth away the stone. One drip is innocuous. Two drips, innocuous. A leak, well, you know, those things happen. But constantly dripping. The serpent, if he came to you with a tremendous temptation all of a sudden and hit you with it, you'd reject it straight out of hand. But what about the gradual encroachment? Have you ever watched a cat hunting a bird? Have you ever looked and watched? I once sat there watching a cat. And it was interesting to watch a cat. It would lie down on its haunches. And then it would begin to move. And just move slowly its haunches. And until it got a rhythm going and then it would move one foot forward and then keep moving back and forth so the bird wouldn't notice there was a movement there and then it would begin and then slowly another and it would begin to move forward until it was near enough to pounce the serpent is equally as subtle he comes forward not with a great leap and bound but there's this gentle movement Error creeps up so subtly on a soul that you don't perceive it till suddenly it's gripped your whole being. And that's the way he operates, little by little. If you consider a city, an enemy wanting to take a city could send a few men in, a few men in now, a few men later, a few men later, who would prepare themselves for war? But if you saw an army marching up the main road towards you you'd shut the gates and you'd get ready you'd think they're coming to fight now the enemy when he wants to he puts a little thought in here a little thought in there until he builds up and builds a garrison within your heart suddenly you find you're not fighting an enemy without you're fighting an enemy within who's got ground in you little by little he establishes it that's his method of working um and um one of the interesting things is he plants um, succeeding temptations. Each temptation goes basically on the method of resistance. Take Christ. Now let me explain it obviously. Christ was tempted. Satan waited until he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights and he wasn't hungered. Because after 40 days your hunger returns naturally just a natural thing and if you don't eat after that you die you begin to starve to death but there's a time after the third day of fasting for 40 days you'll find your hunger just goes and you can fast week two weeks after the first three days i have never fasted 40 days i do want to confess and i wouldn't do it unless god told me to and as he hasn't told me to i'm not going to try um, but i do know men who have tried and um, it's one way to lose weight uh, but there's no other virtue in it unless God tells you to but anyway Christ was fasting 40 days and his hunger returned on the 40th day and then Satan comes to him and he says well if you are the son of God turn these stones into bread Jesus' reply was it is written so Satan thinks about that for a time and comes back takes him to a pinnacle shows him the um, um, takes him to a pinnacle and said cast yourself down why 
because it's written you put your trust in the word of God alright prove it's true now he took the very thing that Christ used to rebut the first temptation and he used it in the second and you want to watch because when the devil gets subtle enough he'll take the very first thing he's tempted you with your rebuttal of that will be the very thing you'll use in the second one each succeeding temptation he'll use your form of resistance as the weapon against you and that's one of his subtleties that's the way he did it with Christ that's the way he'll do it with you and one has to watch those things uh, and know his methods and then the next thing you have to watch is his retreats Satan is so artful at retreating after he's tempted you and you'll find real victory never believe it when Satan flies and retreats it is but to draw you out of the garrison and armor of your heart and the protection of the word of God into an open field where he might slay you the more easily so after a temptation rejoice in the fact that God's delivered you but guard your heart extra well remember how Joshua realized when the children of Ai had defeated the children of Israel they'd sent up a few men against the city at one big and then Joshua said alright we'll take it the next time and he said what we'll do we'll send up a few men and flee as, as you did the first time draw the men out of their protection and then we'll get them and in the spiritual realm the enemy often does that he'll come and he'll tempt you and then he'll begin to run and then you'll begin glory to God we've got real victory here at that point you're at your weakest don't ever chase him. Watch out. Because you need to guard your back. Those are his methods. And we need to know his methods in our life. And some of you will realize how you get trapped. There's a great trap, for instance, in the spirit realm of the charismatics. To give you one example, uh, I remember seeing men who prayed for someone and they were gloriously delivered. And they had demonic... Uh, problems and God set them free and there's no doubt they were set free by God but what was the next subtle thing why anyone then who had a bondage had a demon the victory they'd gotten the devil retreating then gave them ground to think that this was the way to march forever after so they got trapped and taken believe then there was devils of this and devils of that and demons of fear and uh, demons of lust and demons of lying and demons of any name they could think of they got one load of old rubbish every devil's a liar every devil's lustful every devil's deceitful every devil's an unclean spirit nothing clean about a devil you could name a million names and it would suit the demons but one victory can lead a man's pride to think that he's found an answer. And I remember in those early days how everyone was told that if you'd got a problem you couldn't overcome, it was a demon. Obviously, that took the responsibility off you and placed it on some little spirit that was innocent. 
I mean, it wasn't you that did it. Now it was, wasn't you that lasted. It was the spirit of lust. Better get delivered of it, brother. In the name of Jesus, let's cast it out, they say. And so they go about and people roll on the floor because the devil likes to put on a show. He'll give you the best exhibition of all. They'll cough, they'll splutter because they've seen other people do it and psychosomatically, you'll, you'll engender lots of actions in people. Cough, they'll even vomit. They're not a demon in them at all but the devils use their body to give you an exhibition. You say, but that first person was really met. Yeah, that's right. And the greatest victory, he bore a retreat, but then he put into you a principle that wasn't true. You have to watch his subtlety. We're not ignorant of his devices, are we? But many of us have been caught by them, haven't we? Hook, line and sinker, we fell for it. I remember Brother Miller telling me how... Um, demonology came down to Argentina. Demonology, the charismatic move, the power men came. And he was in this conference and, and uh, there was a woman there who seemed to be a nominal Christian and she had a problem. And one of these, two, there were two men there at this conference. One of them was kind of the leading fellow and he started casting demons out this woman, you know, rebuking the devil, casting out. <laughs> And off he went. Within two days, their conference turned into a mob of vomiting, sick, demonic, twisted people. Everyone was getting... And Ed stood back and he thought, what is going on here? They'd never had it before in Argentina, not in the revival or anything. But suddenly, it was coming everywhere. You know, the old Bashan or Prince doctrine. And he thought, well, there's something wrong. And he, So he went and he sought the Lord. And the Lord said to him, you've left the word of God. What they were working by is what they could see with their eyes, what their senses told them. And let's face it, the men who were going around with this great power, laying hands on someone, in the name of Jesus, and down these people would go, it looked good. Sounds as though things are working well. Although I have always had a tender stomach and I'm afraid if I see someone throw up, it usually makes me throw up too. I always remember praying for someone, if you'll excuse the example, and they were sick and I tell you, it was fortunate there was a waste bin over the back of the chair because I was too, lost my breakfast. And now I hadn't got a demon, but I just have a, <laughs> a tender stomach. So I never went in for that much, thank God. I was protected from it by my own sensibilities, or lack of them. <laughs> uh, it just turned my stomach and warm. I was ill. <laughs> so I thought, well, I won't go after that kind of thing. <clears throat> and uh, that's the way it goes, you know. God's very gracious. He uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. There were other people who... You know, it didn't affect them. Well, they and they weren't squeamish. Well, they could do it. Their hearts content. As for me, I found I needed a waste bin near if I ever got into that kind of thing. So God delivered me graciously, and not because uh, I wouldn't have fallen for it, but when I did fall for it, I ended up being ill. I thought, well, I can't do that. Uh, I mean, it doesn't look right, does it, for a minister to end up leaning over the back of a chair where he's just prayed for someone? showing the same fruit um, 
And that's what happened to me. No joking, that happened. It wasn't a joke. I found, I found it quite embarrassing. But I've always been like that. My wife would tell you, you know, um, I've got a sensitive nature <laughs> on certain things only. And uh, it was one of those. Now the devil knows how to trap you. Don't ever get caught when you've got a victory. Thinking. Oh, we've got it. And now the next thing uh, is, um, and the third thing I want you to know is, he knows how to uh, choose the right weapons or implements to catch you with. The wiles of the devil, he's got his method. We talked about his method. There's the season when he knows you'll be open. But now the weapons he'll use are the most subtle of all. The subtlest rub. And these all three go together. And he chooses people. And the people he chooses. Because obviously if a hoofed creature ends at the end of your bed with a goat beard and a trident in one hand. And a ladle in another with brimstone on it. And says to you, come my sweetie pie, I have a little temptation for you. I think most of you would resist. I think one or two would run. Uh, we, we, we wouldn't like that. Mind you, if you get an angel dancing on your bed, you might think it was from God. I wouldn't. Especially if it winked. But um, one has to beware and the devil realizes that most of us have enough brains not to be taken in by an angel or a spirit for suddenly appearing and uh, presenting some great spiritual thing. And they can. Not that there aren't true angels that appear. Of course there are. And those angels and angelic beings um, would only appear if there was some great, trial you were going through or some great need that, and God wanted to make sure you knew I mean if you were a Mary uh, we haven't got a Mary here but I'm not referring to her but if you were a Mary and you were about to have an immaculate conception I think it's necessary to send an angel to tell you because I think that if someone came and told you that you'd suspect their motives whereas an angelic being coming and announcing it uh, you wouldn't suspect their motives I trust and but don't any of you young ladies think if a spirit does suddenly appear to you and announce it that that is come from God because there's one Christ born and that's it um, we need to realize it isn't in spirits but he'll send people of influence and he sends three types of people there's the people who've got place position and power there's the people who've got a kind of reported holiness or reputed holiness. And then the third type of person he sends is someone who's related to you or someone who's got an interest in you. And he uses those three types of people most of all. He will use the odd stranger, but generally not. And those people he will use as his weapons. He'll use their mouths to speak forth things, to stumble. And we need to see how he does it. Um, if you look at um, people of place and power, uh, the one I thought of was Korah. 
Now, he was a prince amongst the Israelites. All right, there was Moses and Aaron doing a good job for God, leading the people out. And in Numbers, you'll find, Korah says this. He says in Numbers 16, he says, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation is holy. Look, Moses and Aaron, you're taking too much upon you. Who are you to lead us? Everyone's filled with the Spirit. Everyone can prophesy. Everyone can do things. You're taking too much on yourself. Now it sounds plausible, doesn't it? Hmm? And Korah gathered round him a group of people. And you remember his end was quite rapid, really. And ground opened up and swallowed him up. Wife, children, the lot, and everyone that was with him. And that's what happens. People come and they, they don't understand and they begin to, you know, the devil uses them. And there'll be people that will come and suggest things to you and it'll sound logical and reasonable. All men are priests and kings unto God. Why have a pastor? You can all find your own way. Why not just go out and experience everything? Go to all types of churches and then see. Well, you get mixed up. If a sheep had many shepherds, who would really look after the sheep? If it was forever wandering from flock to flock, who would care for it? No one would know that they had a responsibility to it. But it sounds reasonable, Korah's little explanation. Moses, you're taking too much upon yourself. Who are you to set yourself up? Sounded reasonable, so the other princes went along with it. And a lot of the people went into his error. Until the whole camp was beginning to turn round against Moses and say, hey, who are you? And it's surprising how the devil will use someone who's got position. Use them very subtly. But use them, he will. They've got position and power. And then the second thing is the people with reputed holiness. He uses them. Now the most apt illustration of that in the scriptures would be, obviously, I think, the um, Pharisees and Sadducees. Wouldn't you all agree? They had reputed holiness, didn't they, the high priest? Wouldn't you agree with that? And so the devil wants to use them. And he says, Jesus says this in um, Matthew 16, 6. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, it's interesting that Christ also says that the kingdom of heaven's like leaven. And yet he turns around and says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. One minute he's saying the kingdom of heaven's like leaven, which you... A woman hid in dough. And the next minute is saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now what was the difference between one leaven and the other? They both worked in the same way. Leaven works in one way. And he says, the kingdom of heaven's like leaven. And then he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now the amazing thing about leaven is its texture is the same as dough. A little leaven says... Uh, um, Paul leavens the whole lump. And once it's mixed into, 
You can't sense it, but it will turn the thing sour. It's there. Leaven. And we're warned about leaven. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, what is the leaven of the Pharisees? Have you ever wondered? Christ tells us to beware of it. Have you ever wondered what it means? Hmm, none of you have wondered what it means. Have you ever wondered what it means, the leaven of the Pharisees? Hmm? Well, there you are, you see. There Christ has warned people against something and none of you have bothered to find out what he was warning them against. No, it's leaven. Hmm? It was... The word of God that they gave, the bread and the food, that's right. Now, why did he call it leaven? What about the word of God that they proclaim? What was wrong about it? It produced self-righteousness, but what was the big problem with it, really? It was mixed with the true word. The leaven was the true word mixed with false. The trouble was that the false wasn't apparent in the truth. And that's the subtlety of being aware, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. There's a lot of people that proclaim truth. And with it is mixed error. Christ says beware of them. Watch out. When good comes and great truths are proclaimed, but with it is tarnished error. Let me um, try and give you an example of it. Uh, well, let's give a few examples, all right? How many of you heard people say after, for instance, something topical, the Pope had been, what a wonderful man he was? Yeah. They got up and they said, what a beautiful, oh, how gracious he was. Pastor Hart, you know, went and touched all these cripples. Didn't heal them, but touched them. Made them feel better inside because the Holy Father had touched them. Um, and they, they all got kind of uh, a something from it. And he gets up and he says, what he wants is unity in Christ. Sounds plausible, doesn't it? And he puts on one of the best politician displays you could ever come across. Regan Carter, Maggie Thatcher. Well, Foot wouldn't even try. But um, uh, Owen or all of them would be left miles out with the Pope. He was a politician of the politicians, wasn't he? Went round, kissed the babies, patted the old ladies, you know, gave them a little pat and, you know, God bless you and... You know, Jesus loves you people. What does Pope John Paul mean in Spanish or whatever it was he says? And people all cheer. 
mean, they were neurotic. They were immersed in it. They were drunk, intoxicated with it. And then he gets up and he says, what the church needs is unity. Of course it does. Unity of spirit. What the church needs is unity. But of course he meant the church universal. Uh, and the church universal happens to be in New Jerusalem, not in Rome. And that's where our city is, and the mother of us all. It's not Rome. Stuck on a hill. One of the seven hills, of course. It's uh, New Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven. And so... They got that wrong, but he says the church wants unity. Now, how many people have swallowed that little pill of Jesus loves you people? Now, what was interesting was when he talked to the young people, he upheld doctrines of Rome that everyone hates. I mean, Mariology. It's hated, isn't it? Saying that a woman was the mother of God is blasphemy. And yet he put over, not where the errors were, but he put over a great truth of Christianity that God said we're to love one another. And he proclaimed that and totally ignored all the heinous doctrines which lay behind it. And people swallowed him and believed him and ignored all the things that were behind See, the devil doesn't come along with the horns and say, well, what I want you to believe is in the relics that we have for the saints. What I want you to believe in is the sacrificing priest at the mass. What I want you to believe in is purgatory. What I want you to believe in is confession. Go to a priest and say a few Hail Marys and you'll be all right. Didn't put that over. That's all in it. What he put over was something that people would swallow. The hook was underneath. The bait was sweet. And apparently true. Who doesn't want peace in the Falklands? Obviously I want peace in the Falklands. But I don't want it at the price of principle. At the price of truth. Do you? Obviously, I want uniting in the church. I want to see a united church, but I don't want to see it at the price of truth. I don't want to see the precious truths of God cast aside in order to unite people. Do you? I don't want to see Christ, the truth, the way and the life defamed in order that I might have fellowship with my brother. That price is too high for me. But how many people didn't count the cost of the unity he was talking about and thought it was a sweet ointment to their ears? That's the subtlety of the serpent. He comes in and he covers choice truth. Um, covers error with choice truth. He puts over a real choice truth and you swallow the outside without realizing what's really inside and behind it. And you'd say that many in this country have swallowed that truth. There's the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's got into power and position. Now he's taking the Anglican Church down the way to Rome. 
But he's not taking them on Maryology and he's not taking them on Mass and he's not taking them on this and on that and on the other. What he's taking them on is the things that are most apparently true. Of course, the fools swallow the bait. The hook's there. That's how he operates. Truth. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Take another move. All right? There's less topical because it's died the death. Uh, the charismatic move. Died the death. It's over now. But take, take an example of it. I remember it when it started, and I remember meeting Michael Harper when he was trying to run the whole thing uh, about 18 years ago. And I sat in his office, and he was behind somewhere behind Oxford Street. And I remember him trying to, he was trying at that time to take over the full gospel businessman and run it. And Constitution said a clergyman couldn't be in it. And I told him he was a clergyman, so he couldn't be a member. And I never was popular with him after that. But I was secretary of that at the time. And um, when I knew, didn't know better. But... The thing was, when I was there, I remember realizing something that has never left me. And it never will leave me. And that is this, that people saw the gifts of the Spirit operate and they abandoned their standard of truth to take a greater truth. I know people who believe in believers' baptism who abandon it because they saw the gifts of the Holy Ghost in some other church and people functioning in gifts of the Holy Ghost without believing in believers' baptism. So they threw off that truth. What's the point in it? Now the subtlety was they thought they were coming into a greater truth. They were coming into a greater experience, maybe, for some individuals. But what you can't do is abandon truth. You can't just give it up and pretend it doesn't exist. How many people have been taken down the road to hell? Because they have abandoned blessed doctrines which our Lord and Master has taught and they've seen some miracle power working and thought, oh, that's great, that's supernatural, I'll go with that. And then ignored all the other things that go with it. Now, you can't afford to. But it's been put over that way, hasn't it? Here's a greater truth. Wasn't it put over that way to you? This is, you know, well, what you've got, you're Christians, now you need something more. The baptism of the Holy Ghost. This is what you need. We'll lay hands on you, pray for you, say banana backwards and you're in. Now, what you found was those people ignored the tenets of the Christian doctrine. They ignored the basis of the word of God. Very often, they ignored all sorts of things in their denominations and they came along with this story of, oh well, here's something better. And people saw it put out and they bought it. You know, there is a saying which is probably derived from the good people of Israel. He that sells cheapest will have most customers. Think about it. He that sells cheapest will have most customers. That's why the charismatic move was so popular. You didn't have to do anything for it. Come in and God will bless you. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Come out here, brother. Pray for you. Woo you and boom boom. Over you go. Now that's it. You're in. You're in. You're a son of God. Glory. No repentance. 
Not really preach. No demands on the life, no commitment, no, no truth to be lived up to, no standard upheld, no banner of life, just a miracle power and you're away. What a wicked thing. Now, find out how many people, when you preach a gospel of self-denial, a gospel of commitment to Christ and total eradication of self-desires, of self-wants and self-love and the dealings of God in your life, dealing with sin and dealing with the wrong drives within you, preach that gospel and see how many people want to buy that. But preach a gospel, as I heard one man say, that in heaven you've got an open checkbook and you can write what you like. It's yours for free. It's all grace. How many of you, if I said to you, listen, friend, I'll give you an open checkbook and you can write anything you like on it and use my name, and most of you wouldn't bother you think he hadn't got the money to back that up. But how many people would go and take that and think, goodness me, if there's a checkbook open and it costs nothing, I'll write as many checks as I like. I'll get this, I'll get that, I'll get whatever I want. I heard a preacher get up and proclaim that devilish doctrine. And I saw people flocking to the front in their hundred to receive blank checks. Do you think God's mad? My, with a gospel like that, the whole world will be converted. That's how you can build big churches with that. They do in America. Crystal cathedrals with 10 or 20,000 people in them. Uh, the faith groups. Now, beware. You see... You won't get people buying a gospel where it says, now look here, you've got to repent of your sin. God's coming to deal with you. Uh, there isn't a blank checkbook. There's a check signed in the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, and that will cost you everything. You cannot go your own way. You cannot do what you want. You can't just receive because you think you're a son of God. There's a price to be paid. Christ paid the original price. You've got to pay the price in your life. Accept a man, deny himself and take up his cross. He cannot be my disciple. How could that fit in with their hellish doctrine of it's all free? Or take another illustration he gave. Why, it was like walking down a town with all the shops full of goodies, all the shop windows. And you could go in and take whatever you liked. For Jesus had already paid the price for you. Who wouldn't go to a town like that? Who wouldn't want to visit a place like that? Has God gone mad? Is that grace? Grace is unmerited favor. None of us deserved to have Christ die for us. True. But it doesn't mean it's unmerited uh, abundance. It doesn't mean that God's just given me everything. What blasphemy. But how subtle it is to the babe in Christ who hears this doctrine. How easy the heart is caught with someone who says you can have something for nothing. Someone offers you something for nothing, 
Isn't it easy to get caught up with it? What a heinous thing. The wiles of the devil. And the trouble is that the truths he takes, like the gifts of the Spirit, are genuine and wonderful things. And people had neglected them. But boy, didn't he use them for his own ends. To make God out as something that he wasn't. Men ran headlong after this, that, and the other. And many were taken into destruction. And many now today who started off in the charismatic move are in great deceptions. And where is the move? Where are the churches they founded and built? They don't exist or they're disintegrating fast. Or the people have gone into heinous errors. Why? Because they didn't realize that you've got to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That is, which blows up a truth and ignores the other truths. You've got to compare scripture with scripture. I was talking to someone the other day about my books. I've got books on Puritans. I've got books on Methodists. I've got books on Quakers. I've got books on Luther, Martin Luther. I've got books, and I love my books because I can read what glorious revelations the saints of God of old have had. And it's progressive revelation. Every generation has progressive revelation. One thing I've learned and one thing I'm sure of Every time God moves by his spirit, revelation is line upon line, precept upon precept, according to God. He will never abandon previous truths for a new truth. The new truth will fit perfectly into place with all the previous truths. So I need to know what the Methodists taught. I need to know what the Quakers taught. I need the truths that Luther discovered. I need the truths that the Pentecostals discovered. I need the truths that the Charismatics were led into. I need the truths that the Brethren had. I need the truths of the Baptists. I need the truths of the men of God of old, the Puritans. But above all, I need to see that each step of truth can never be taken on its own. It has to be taken as a whole. And I always examine some new truth or some new thing people give me. And I say, now just a minute, how does it tally with God's previous revelation? Does it fit in? How does it tally with cost against self? Does it bring crucifixion of self and the dealings of God with the individual? Or does it ignore it? Does it bring true repentance and a clearing of sin? Does it proclaim Christ, the Savior, who died to save his people from their sin? Or does it proclaim a gospel of goodies with no cost? And I examine truth in that way. And when I do, I find a lot of the new truths that come forth, I have to throw out the window. And you'd be wise if you examine truth that way. The Puritans, bless their hearts, they had a tremendous work of God going. Would to God we had a quarter of what the Puritans had. Would that the Charismatics had a fiftieth of what the Puritans had. Say, but they were legalistic. True. But so is God. He set principles which are very legal in the world and you'll find he won't vary them. They were in bondage, true, to Christ and loving him. And walking in a holy life. And may we ever be that way. 
What about the Methodists? Well, they had tremendous truth. What about the Lutherans? Well, they had tremendous truth. But it was only in part, and then there was progressive revelation. May God in his grace teach us that we need to be progressive. Let us beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The leaven that comes, which will leaven the whole lump. Don't ever accept a truth with a little error tainted to it and say, ah, well, uh, you know, the favorite saying I think they put over is, <coughs> let us agree on the major things. The minor things are insignificant and don't matter. It's the fundamentals of our faith, not the minor things. I want to tell you, that is leaven. That was where the Pharisees were wrong. In the end, they crucified Christ. In the end, you'll oppose the gospel of God if you compromise. Not one jot or tittle, said Christ, will pass from the law. And if you teach men to do so, you're going to be for it. He said, if any man teach them to put away one of those things, I want to uphold the whole of the revealed word of God, don't you? I want to walk in all the revelation God's given. By his grace, I want to be kept. Amen? Isn't that your heart? You want to find that you've kept yourself away from the wiles of the devil. There's only one way to do that. That's in humility to seek God's face, to worship him, to meet off together, to walk in love one with another to learn and to be always cautious of letting the devil snare your heart with affections, new thoughts, new truths. Be careful, your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Who resists steadfast in the faith? You've got to remain steadfast and resist him. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We've talked about what the armor is. Those are some of the wiles that the devil uses. Next time I want to go on and talk about how he accuses and vexes the soul of a Christian. These were merely things he uses to draw a Christian into sin. May God open our hearts and our minds. There's only one other scripture I'd like to point out in 1 Corinthians 5, before you put your Bible away. To finish with, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 says this. And here is a Here is a lovely little uh, scripture. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. What are we to do with leaven? Hmm? Purge it out. 
If you have accepted errors into your life and you've compromised yourself, my advice to you is purge out the leaven. If you've accepted and compromised on truth, purge it out of your life. Don't give it an inch. Because a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Sounds reasonable to the flesh, an enemy to the spirit. Purge out the old leaven. Purge it out of your life, out of your being, out of your mind, out of your heart. Get rid of it. Don't ever compromise on truth. Ever. Don't ever go back on the revelation God has given you. Don't ever go back on truths that have been sown in your heart. Stand steadfast in the faith. For the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if you don't stand steadfast, don't ever get sweetened by the leaven of the Pharisees which says, this is a great truth. Uh, let's just ignore the points, the little points on which we disagree and major on the major things. How often have I heard that? A noose to put a neck into hell. May God give us the grace to learn that we must purge our hearts of old leaven and walk in newness of life. In the fullness of the stature of Christ, putting on the whole armor of God, and never walking away from it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in your grace and your love, you'll bring our hearts to purge out the old leaven, the compromises, the things that we've accepted, O oh Lord, without your word. Lord Jesus, quicken our hearts by your Spirit. Teach us to walk and stand against the wiles of the devil as we put on the whole armor of God. Teach us how to stand steadfast in the faith. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we have compromised. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for the times when we've been deceived, when we've let the enemy take advantage. Lord, teach us how to walk and how to be aware of him. And how to stand against his wiles. Teach us how to wear the armor and to use it. Teach us how to garrison our souls. And keep them unto the day of Jesus Christ. Lord bless and keep each one. Renew each one. And let each one increase day by day. In the grace and glory of God we pray. In Jesus precious name. Amen.